The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream the library online. Learn more at gettysburgcollection.com. gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Wilkes-Barre, Luzerne County. We've talked about subjects rebelling against empires on this show. We've talked about states rebelling against nations, but we've never talked about colonies fighting colonies. Today's the day we change that. I'm your host Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Pennamite Yankee Wars is Stephen Killian, attorney, and Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission Commissioner Bill Lewis. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Uh, tell us about your background, Stephen. I'm a graduate of Dickinson College and Dickinson School of Law, but history really has been my main focus, uh, particularly colonial history and local colonial history in this area. My fifth great-grandfather, Elijah Richards, settled here under a Connecticut uh, warrant in uh, 1771. Bill? Um, I'm a graduate of Wilkes University, which is right across from where he's sitting right now as well as with graduate degrees from Lehigh University. I'm by day a, a, a portfolio manager, but my passion really is history, particularly the history of Pennsylvania. Fantastic. So we have the Susquehanna River behind us. It's been there for quite a while. Uh, what was this place like in the 18th century? It was really very rural. It was the frontier. Uh, in the Wyoming Valley, you had some broad plains along the riverbank, uh, very fertile plains. Uh, you had mountains on both sides of the valley that provided timber. There were a number of creeks that ran through the valley that uh, provided water power for sawmills and grist mills. So it was an ideal settlement uh, for uh, someone who wanted to establish a farming community. It's also an area that was very, very active with Native American uh, encampments and villages. Uh, it was an area that the, both the French as well as the Moravians came to at various times to kind of check out what was going on here. It developed a reputation of having extremely fertile uh, growing fields. And so the Native Americans would grow their crops here. And that started really getting an interest in the other colonies as to this great river-fed uh, area for growing crops. There was a lot of shad in the river, too, at that time. Uh, this is going to be central to the story, uh, but who lived here? Well. As Bill said, there were Native American tribes early on, the Shawnee, the Nanticoke, and some others, but there were no permanent settlements like the Iroquois Nation in New York. Uh, by the mid-1700s, uh, it was uninhabited, uh, except for maybe a couple of um, small Indian villages. Uh, but um, basically, it was an open frontier land, uh, open for settlement, really. 
It was the home of King Tedeuscum, who was really a very famous Native American figure. He uh, was heavily involved in negotiations with the Penn family uh, in terms of what was going on in Pennsylvania, working with them to, to resolve land disputes among the Native Americans and the Penns. Uh, was taken quite often to Easton, Philadelphia, to conferences to discuss issues related to the Native Americans. Um, and he lived right along where we are right now. We're going to talk about uh, colonies and claiming land here in this episode. Uh, how did a colony claim land? We start with wilderness. So how do we get to the point where colonies start to dispute who owns what? Under the English system, uh, the king would grant a charter for a particular area along the east coast, basically running from the coast inland. Uh, the two colonies that are involved here are Pennsylvania and Connecticut. Connecticut was originally granted a charter by King Charles I in 1636, I believe it was, and that was renewed by Charles II in 1662. In 1680 or 81, King Charles II granted William Penn a charter. And the original Connecticut charter ran from approximately a little north of present-day Sunbury to the New York border, uh, and then on to um, the Massachusetts border. And it said that it would be all the land between that area, except as occupied by another Christian king, which was taking into consideration the Dutch colony of Amsterdam, which basically was Manhattan and up the uh, Hudson River. So that Connecticut wrapped around the Dutch colony. But then in 1664, the English took the Dutch colony and they expanded it to what is now present day New York. So it cut off this area in what's now Pennsylvania from the actual colony of Connecticut. And then of course Penn's charter overlapped that. So you had this area was in dispute as between the two colonies. And the, the interesting thing about the Connecticut charter, which of course predates Penn's charter, uh, is that it was sea to sea. So in their minds, they owned everything as far west as you could possibly go until you reached another body of water. Um, so that's one of the reasons that this area was so heavily disputed. Connecticut felt that this was their part of the, the country and everything west. Uh, the term Western Reserve, we often hear referred to as Ohio, really comes out of the fact that the Connecticut's believe, Connecticut folks believe that everything to the west was their reserve lands. These were uh, legal documents, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So when you have people settling on land or just, I guess we could say squatting, uh, how would a colony go about remedying that? Well, Connecticut uh, was involved with what was called the Susquehanna Company. It was a land speculating company formed in 1753. And they went to the Iroquois and they purchased this land uh, from 10 miles west of the Delaware to approximately the west branch of the Susquehanna River from what is now the New York border down to around a little above Sunbury, which at that time was called Fort Augusta. And they then sold settling rights to uh, people in Connecticut. Connecticut was running out of land at that point. And it also was not the best for farming, it's very rocky. And there was a beautiful valley with very fertile soil. So they sold settling rights. In 1762, a group came down from Connecticut and they established a small settlement uh, at Mill Creek, which is uh, here in Wilkesboro near the General Hospital, planted crops and went back to Connecticut for the winter. In the spring of 1763, a larger group came back and actually established a settlement, built cabins, and uh, 
planted additional crops and in October of that year, during the harvest, there was a, an Indian raid on the settlement and they were ambushed in the fields. Eleven were killed and the rest went back to Connecticut. The French and Indian War was still going on so they took a hiatus from settlement until that was resolved and the Indian problems well, would go away. Around the same time King Titiuscum was burned alive in his wooden castle which again was right along the river here. Um, so the presumption was, was this, you know, uh, something that the, the Connecticut settlers had done to him? Was it an enemy Native American tribe? I don't think anyone will really know, but the uh, Native American attack on the Connecticut settlers was often seen as retribution for his death. When we first see Connecticut settlers come here, uh, do they bring that distinct New England culture with them that we recognize so much in places like Boston and Rhode Island? Well. A little later, uh, as the settlement grew, it actually was designated as the town of Westmoreland, attached to Litchfield County, Connecticut. In New England, you had the town system. Uh, it was kind of a dichotomy where originally this was part of Northampton County, Pennsylvania. In 1772, Pennsylvania created the county of Northumberland to encompass this area, uh, to take it away from Northampton. And in 1774, the town of Westmoreland was created, and in 1776, Connecticut actually constituted as the county of Westmoreland. So at that period in time, you had Pennsylvania County and the Connecticut County claiming the same area. And it was, the area was really, if you were to go around here at say 1800, you would see homes that were very reminiscent of the salt bar box architecture of Connecticut. Uh, in fact, there is a remaining home that was uh, Nathan Dennison's, who had been the second in command at the Battle of Wyoming. It, it's just a, almost a duplicate of anything you would find in New England. Uh, the town here was designed by Durkee. In fact, lot number one is literally across the street from where we are now, and it was laid out in a grid pattern um, to resemble the typical New England town. There was a town square, and then everything irradiated from that. We use uh, terms like Yankee and, and Pennamite to describe the people who live here. Um, very specific terms. What, that, what does that mean? What is a Yankee and a, and a Pennamite? Well, a Yankee was the designation given to those people who came from Connecticut. Pennamites were those who were sent here by the Penn family interests, because at this time the Penn family still owned the colony of uh, Pennsylvania, to look out for their interests, so they became known as the Pennamites. And after the 1763 massacre, which I call the first massacre of Wyoming, uh, the hiatus of settlement took place for another six years. But in 1769, the Susquehanna Company decided to repopulate their settlement here in the Wyoming Valley. Pennsylvania got wind of this, and they sent a man named Amos Ogden and some uh, Pennsylvania militia up to Wilkes-Barre, and they built a blockhouse of the old Connecticut settlement along Mill Creek and to establish a trading post with the Indians. When the first 40 Connecticut settlers got here, uh, they found uh, Ogden's blockhouse. So they came down probably maybe a thousand yards from where we are, and they built Fort Durkee, named for Captain John Durkee, who was their, their leader. In October of six, um, that year, Ogden attacked and captured Fort Durkee, because there were only about 40 defenders, and the Connecticut people left the valley but they came back in the early 1770 
and Ogden in the meantime had occupied Fort Durkee. Uh, they burned Ogden's blockhouse and they captured Fort Durkee and the Pennsylvanians went back. And during the year 1770, it was a back and forth across the Pennamites would come and oust the Connecticut's, the Connecticut's would come and oust the Pennamites until uh, finally in uh, the late winter of 1770, the Pennamites finally recaptured Fort Durkee. And at that time, they built Fort Wyoming, which is just about where we're sitting, and demolished Fort Durkee. And they occupied that in the winter. In early 1771, the Connecticut uh, settlers came back and they captured Fort Wyoming. At that point, Connecticut was in control, if you will, of the valley, and more settlers were coming in. The two colonies um, decided to present their dispute to the Privy Council in England. So there was a lull while that proceeding was pending, and then unfortunately the revolution broke out, uh, and that was never decided by the Privy Council uh, there. And Connecticut was still sending more settlers to the area, so that by about 1778, there were 3,000 people living in the Wyoming Valley. Uh, again, it had been created as the town of Westmoreland, and then it became the county of Westmoreland. And it was uh, here, and it was the Connecticut settlers who were attacked by the um, combined force of uh, John Butler's British Rangers, Tories, and uh, mostly Seneca Indians that led to the Battle and Massacre of Wyoming on July 3, 1778. In fact, Bill was the treasurer of the Wyoming Commemorative Association. I'm the secretary, and we just uh, conducted the 140th annual commemoration of the 240th anniversary of the Battle of Wyoming on July 3rd at the Wyoming Monument. But there was a second Yankee Petamite War in that interim period. In December of uh, 1775, Colonel John Plunkett assembled a force of Pennsylvania militia down at Sunbury, Fort Augusta, and they came up the river and they landed at Harvey's Landing uh, along the Susquehanna in what is now West Nanticoke, part of Plymouth Township. And the Connecticut militia went down and they formed a defensive line on a rock ledge. And on Christmas Day, um, Plunkett marched about a mile from his campsite and spent the day trying to dislodge the Connecticut militia from this rock ledge. And that became known as the Battle of Rampart Rocks. And that was, this, if you want to call it, the Second Yankee Pennamite War. When Plunkett re realized he wasn't going to be able to dislodge them from the, uh, the, law, the rock ledge, he then decided to cross the river and flank them. But the Connecticut people had placed Lazarus Stewart and his Hanover Company of militia uh, on the riverbank. And so as the boats came across, they opened fire. Plunkett realized that uh, he wasn't going to succeed, so he turned around and went back down the river. And it was calm then until uh, the Wyoming Massacre, but in terms of Pennsylvania, Connecticut um, disputes, it was calm until after the Revolution. And the dispute attracted uh, Lazarus Stewart and the Paxtang boys, who were very famous in the Lancaster area, basically for stirring up trouble all the time. At one point, uh, Christian Indians had been housed in Lancaster, uh, Stewart and his gang decided that there was no such thing as a good Native American, so they literally went into their captive area and wiped them out. Uh, so very brutal people, but he decided he wanted to side with the uh, Connecticut settlers here because it was, you know, a chance to really stir up some additional trouble. A lot of people view the Yankee-Pennamite War as the first civil war in the United States or in the colonies here. Um, it did have some pretty wide-sweeping impact on, on how states worked together and how the federal government started to intervene. I think what's also very interesting 
uh, about that is at the time during uh, the time that this was considered part of Connecticut, this was the area was actually represented in the Connecticut state legislature. Uh, so you had people who lived here in what we now know as Pennsylvania actually going and, and attending legislative sessions in the state of Connecticut. So pretty, pretty bizarre. And also during the revolution when the local soldiers mustered to serve with the colonial troops, they mustered into a unit that was part of the Connecticut state militia. We're talking about armies, we're talking about burning forts and, and people shooting each other. Um, would a settler know whenever they were asked to come here or forced to move here that they may be having to fight on behalf of their colony, on behalf of Pennsylvania or Connecticut? Yeah, I think it was pretty well known that your chances of, of really having a quiet life here, uh, at least after the first couple of years, were going to be very difficult. Um, and you read accounts of uh, the, the Penn folks dispossessing the Connecticut folks and the Connecticut folks dispossessing the Pennsylvania folks. I mean, back and forth constantly. And sometimes it was very individualized. They found somebody they didn't like. They would literally uh, throw the family out onto the street and, uh, you know, either lock the building down or, or set it on fire. Um, it, was, it was nasty stuff. It was very individual. Um, and um, it was also not just here in the Wyoming Valley, but it was in Susque what we now call Susquehanna County, Wyoming County, part of Bradford County, Lackawanna County. That was all part of the area uh, that the Susquehanna Company claimed, and yet the Penn family and the, the Pennsylvania settlers wanted those folks out. Uh, how would the Penn family identify, maybe we could say, good candidates to be relocated here? Uh, certainly you wouldn't want peaceful farmers living here if you knew that they were going to be somehow an agent of yours. Do we have any evidence of, of that decision-making process? Because if I first come to this colony, this is a tough sell. Good farmland's one thing, but I'm in no, no, no rush to pick up a rifle and fight. Well, you have to remember that the Pens operated on a manorial system. And they laid out the Wyoming Valley on this, this side of the river, uh, was known as the Manor of Stoke, and on what we call the west side of the river, uh, was known as the Manor of Sunbury. And they would grant that to individuals or uh, to a, a company. And they in turn would sublease, because in the manorial system it was a lease situation, the pens were getting ground rents, and they would then um, sublease to people. There weren't too many uh, Penamites who came up here to actually settle. They more or less came up here to expel the Connecticut settlers uh, until everything was resolved. But you didn't have uh, many in the way of actual Penamite coming up here to farm. It was more they came up to expel the Connecticut farmers. And the Pennsylvania interests up here were pretty much land speculators. People who looked at the area and said, wow, there's great farmland there. I want to own a big chunk of it, but I'll settle it or, or, or you know, my group will settle it when we have the chance. They were less interested in immediate occupancy as opposed to the Connecticut settlers who were coming here to farm. Uh, we mentioned uh, some of the prominent Indian leaders who lived here. Did they have a side in this in Pennsylvania-Connecticut debate that we know of? Well, there were no uh, Native Americans actually living in the valley at, at the time. And we're coming into the point of the revolution where the Native Americans uh, mostly took the side of the British. 
uh, except for the Oneida and the Tuscarora of the Six Nations. So the, the British used them for raids on the frontier. Uh, that's what led to the Battle of Wyoming uh, and the massacre of the militia because once this became a Connecticut town and then a Connecticut county, they were forced to establish a militia. So the 24th Connecticut militia was established here and there were 10 companies scattered throughout the, the settlement. And um, they were, as uh, Bill said, they were led by Colonel Nathan Dennison and Lieutenant Colonel George Dorrance. Uh, so that the, when the revolution broke out, Connecticut had to provide a certain number of troops to the Continental Army, so there were two companies, the first and second independent companies uh, from the Wyoming Valley were sent to serve with Washington. And that left mostly the older men and uh, younger boys as the male population here in the valley at the time. The earliest uh, Indian leader, Native American leader here was King T.D. Eskim, but he was killed in the fire so early on and that basically wiped out the Native American leadership presence here in the area. Um, he clearly uh, supported the Penn family, was very close to them. Um, he did have a bit of an alcohol problem and to deal with that, the Penn family kept him well stocked with, with uh, drink. And he actually died, passed out in his Indian castle uh, in the fire from, from a pretty rough night of drinking, the legend has it. Uh, we previously did an episode on the Battle of Wyoming or what some call the Wyoming Massacre. Uh, maybe that should be Battlefield, Connecticut, more than Battlefield, Pennsylvania, from what you're telling me. Uh, but we always talk about the origins of the revolution in and around Boston and New England. Uh, do you think the Connecticut settlers here, the Yankees here, shared that intense connection to rebellion early on that made them a target maybe for those Indian raids? Oh, absolutely, because when the revolution broke out, uh, the town meeting, if you did not sign an oath of allegiance to the Continental Congress, you were actually expelled from the community. And those who did not sign, um, mostly the Tories, uh, went up the river toward the Wyalusing area and resettled up there. There was one family here, uh, the Wintermutes, in what's now Exeter Borough, that were suspected of being Tories. Uh, it was found out that they actually were when Butler's Rangers came into the valley. But uh, no, if you didn't sign the Oath of Allegiance to the Continental Congress, you were expelled from the valley. Unlike a lot of Pennsylvania, where you had large German settlements who may not have shared the enthusiasm, at least initially, for the war, this was New Englanders who wanted their freedom, wanted their independence. And so very early on, uh, at least the Connecticut settlers here were very supportive of, of fighting the revolution. Uh, we've mentioned the first Yankee Pennamite War, uh, some flarings up of the second. When the revolution comes, this war sort of pushed maybe to the side. Uh, could we talk about how you feel the revolution really impacted the, the partisans in this fight? Well, you had the two companies from Westmoreland County, uh, Connecticut, fighting with Washington's army under Captain uh, Dirt, Robert Durkee and uh, Samuel Ransom. You also had the supplying of grains from this area, because it was a, sometimes known as Washington's breadbasket, uh, feeding the Continental Army. And the um, hiatus was one caused by the submission of the dispute to the Privy Council, but then Pennsylvania and Connecticut decided when the revolution broke out that they would cease their internecine hostilities 
uh, until that was decided. So that, that was why there was more or less, other than Indian raids, calm here in the Wyoming Valley and the Connecticut settlement grew. It wasn't until the revolution ended, or was about to end, uh, that the dispute came back to the forefront. Uh, in uh, Benjamin Franklin, under the Articles of Confederation, disputes between the two, at that point, states were to be submitted to a commission. And he orchestrated a commission in Trenton, uh, in, which in December of 1782 entered the, what was called the Decree of Trenton, saying that this was Pennsylvania, not Connecticut. And the Connecticut people said, well, that's fine, but let us keep our lands. But as Bill said, uh, the Pennsylvania interests were mostly led by land speculators in Philadelphia, and they weren't satisfied with, with that. So in 1784, uh, they sent man named Alexander Patterson, who was a justice of the peace, with a force of Pennsylvania militia up here to uh, expel the Connecticut settlers. He went down to the Plymouth area, to the Nanticoke area, and literally turned the Connecticut people out of their homes and turned the farms over to Pennsylvania um, settlers. Uh, he quartered soldiers in the homes of the Connecticut farmers, just as the British had done in Boston and in Philadelphia. And he was not very popular. He was arresting anybody who resisted. The July, the Connecticut people were um, up in arms. They invested Fort Wyoming, but they weren't able to capture it, so they went back over to the west side of the river. But they were still a force, an armed force. The Pen uh, Pennsylvania Executive Council sent Colonel John Armstrong with a force from um, Easton up here to settle the, the issue. He was supposed to be the mediator. Well, in August, as his advance group under um, Major Moore reached an area in what is now Toby Hanna Township, Monroe County, uh, called Locust Hill, later Locust Ridge, the Connecticut um, people realized that they were coming and they were ambushed at Locust Hill. And uh, one man was killed and a number wounded and they went back to uh, the main force. But eventually Armstrong did come into the valley and led the Connecticut people to believe he was here to mediate. So he persuaded them to lay down their arms, which they did, but then he did not have the Pennsylvanians lay down their arms. And once he had done that, he went back to Philadelphia and um, it sort of broke loose here with Patterson and his, what I would call a reign of terror on the Connecticut. Um, the leaders were arrested, they were sent to Easton, they were sent to Sunbury under arrest. And then Pennsylvania legislature passed what was called a confirming act that said that if you were a settler here, actually occupied and improved the land, or you were the widow of someone killed in the massacre who had settled here and occupied and improved the land, you could keep your titles. And that was fine with the Connecticut people, except the land speculators got the legislature to suspend this confirming act. And this went back and forth uh, until I think it was finally around 1808 when it was actually settled. In 1786, Luzerne County was set up as an attempt uh, to establish an area that, that people wouldn't have to identify with Easton uh, as the county seat or, or Sunbury or any of these other places. Uh, and the uh, Pennsylvania powers that be sent Timothy Pickering here. Timothy Pickering had been the quartermaster general of the army during the revolution. A uh, pretty powerful figure. He was born and raised in Salem, Massachusetts. So he too, like the Connecticut sailors, was a, uh, 
a New Englander, and they felt that might encompass some trust for him uh, to establish and basically begin to run the county and begin to calm things down here in the Wyoming Valley. Early on in the, uh, I guess, the post-revolutionary period, the young America, we mentioned the Articles of Confederation. Uh, what sort of danger, realistically, did the potential of interstate warfare pose to a very young nation? It, it posed a huge problem for the new country under the Articles of Confederation and then the Constitution. Here you have a country that's come through the revolution, has successfully won their independence, and now you have a series of, of conflicts going on between states. A uh, very similar thing going on in Massachusetts with um, the establishment of Vermont. The, the settlers there wanting to break off. Um, and in fact, uh, at one point, Ethan Allen, who had successfully founded uh, Vermont as a, you know, as a, almost a, a mini war to create a new state, he came down here to look at creating a new state in northeastern Pennsylvania. So you had um, really some very significant issues for the new government to deal with to calm the waters and to keep at least most of the original 13 states intact. A very difficult problem for a new country. And under the Articles of Confederation, you basically had the Congress was the governing body. And I think that showed one of the weaknesses of the Articles that led to the Constitutional Convention to establish the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, as opposed to having power concentrated in just one branch, which was ineffective in dealing with these problems. Uh, when we look at the totality of the fighting that occurred here over this particular dispute, um, how would you describe the general conflict? Do we see large amounts of, of death, uh, casualties, or is this more of a political partisan fight? There would be some uh, casualties every time one of the forts was retaken, uh, either Pennamite or Yankee, but not on a large scale. Uh, there would be some wounded, uh, maybe a half a dozen killed. Uh, the major casualty took place in the Battle of Wyoming, where over 200 and some were killed. Uh, but that had nothing to do with the Yankee-Pennamite dispute. That was uh, a, a British raid. Uh, but there would be, as I said, Locust Ridge, one person was killed and maybe three or four were wounded. Uh, Battle of Rampart Rocks, we don't know exactly how many of Plunkett's men were, were killed, but uh, there were maybe a half a dozen, a dozen of the settlers were killed because after that, uh, they raised a, um, a fund to support the widows. Uh, of those who were killed at uh, Rampart Rocks. But a lot of it was just harassment. It was throwing people out of their homes, trying to dispossess people off their lands, um, to the point where um, that we had one local interesting character who was C uh, Colonel uh, John Franklin, and he was a huge, huge uh, insurgent for the Connecticut folks. So he um, goes on a trip to stir up the population in the area comes back, lands at the river landing, just uh, just a, a half a block from where we sit right now, is walking off from getting off the boat, and he's suddenly grabbed by Pennamite folks. And he's hauled off to prison in, in Philadelphia where he's kept. Um, you know, they're gonna quiet him down because he is really one of the great insurgents uh, of the area. Um, as, as a direct result of that, um, Timothy Pickering, again, sent here by Pennsylvania to get Luzerne County started, is fast asleep in his home about two blocks over one night. 
in the middle of the night, men show up in his bedroom and they kidnap him. And they take him out for uh, a number of days out into the woods where they are trying to intimidate the Pennsylvania people uh, to give up uh, John Franklin as a prisoner. So you had a lot of those sort of things going on. Uh, again, more harassment, certainly some deaths, not a huge number, but it was just constant harassment by both sides of the people who were settled here. My grandfather Richards was arrested twice coming back from Connecticut, uh, taken to Easton and um, let go on bail. Uh, that was another one of the uh, Panamite, uh, I don't want to call it tricks, but one of their tactics was they would arrest you, make you post bail, but then nothing ever came of it afterwards, so they, they would keep the bail. But you have to realize what the avenue of a, approach to the Wyoming Valley was from Connecticut. You would come down to Kingston, New York and cross the Hudson. You would come down to the Delaware, uh, roughly about where Madame Morris is now, and cross over. And then follow Indian trails, roughly uh, the route of Route 83 right now, or 84 right now, uh, down into the Lackawanna Valley and then down the Lackawanna Valley into the Wyoming Valley. So there was no major route. And as Bill said, when they would dispossess, the only way was they would force the people to walk back through the, through, through the wilderness till they reached settlements and civilization. And a lot of times during those uh, forced marches, people would die, children would die, they would die of hunger because they could only take with them what they could carry. Uh, so it wasn't a pleasant experience, particularly for the Connecticut people uh, when they were forced out of the valley and had to go back uh, to trek through the wilderness with what they could carry. The, in the forest they went through came to be known as the Shades of Death. So you can imagine the, between the, the wild animals, the panthers, the bears, and all that sort of thing, and of course the possible attack by Native Americans as they crossed through that area. It was a pretty rough uh, travel uh, itinerary for anybody either leaving the valley or trying to come to the valley. Uh, do we have any idea how I guess the greater colony and then state of Pennsylvania felt about this dispute because I gotta say it really sounds like the Pennsylvanians are really kind of the instigators for a lot of what's going on here. Do we have any sense today of the popular support of the people or is this more a, a project of the Penn family early on uh, and the land speculators? Initially it was really the Penn family trying to secure the land that they believe they had been given by King Charles II. They wanted to secure the title to their lands. Um, and as time went on, I think it became more of an interstate dispute, particularly after the revolution, once the Penn family was off the scene here in the Commonwealth, it became, you know, whose land really is this? And, you know, this was part of Pennsylvania, at least according to the 1681 charter, we want to keep it. We also had the situation where after the Penn family was out of uh, control in Pennsylvania, the Supreme Executive Council was in Philadelphia, and that was pretty much controlled by the Quaker land speculating interests uh, down there. Uh, the Penns are an interesting group when it comes to the Pennsylvania Charter and their lands. Uh, not only did they have a dispute with Connecticut over northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, they had a dispute with the Calverts in Maryland, which led to the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, they had a dispute with Virginia, which claimed up into the Ohio Valley and the Pittsburgh area. And they had a dispute with New York, which gave them the little notch that we have in our northwestern corner at Erie so that they would have access. But uh, they were not above fighting with their neighbors over more land. Uh, the, the pens were not uh, 
geography was very confusing in the 1700s. Yes. There just were not great maps and nobody really knew where the, the actual borders were because the, the deeds were all very sketchy. The peace, it was not necessarily the pens creating a peaceable kingdom, if you will. Right, that's right. right. So, you know, we think of battlefields on programs like this. We think of Gettysburg with tour guides and pamphlets and CDs for your car. If people want to visit these locations, what are some of the places uh, from your vantage point as experts that they should really see what's still around for us to visit? Basically, you really only have historical markers at this time because there is a marker right over here about 100 yards for Fort Turkey, which is more of a 1,000 yards away. For Fort Wyoming was where we're sitting now, but there's a historical marker for that. Uh, one of the outcomes of the Battle of Wyoming was Sullivan's March in, in 1779 up in destroying the Iroquois Nation, and he literally camped right here on the River Common where we're sitting before he set off for New York. Uh, the Wyoming Monument uh, marks the resting place of some of those who were slain in the Battle of Wyoming. Uh, there are some other historical markers around uh, for different events, but there really are no structures or... The Denison Home, the which is Denison. post that period, uh, but is a Connecticut architectural uh, home that Nathan Denison, whose family had all come from Connecticut, built. And you'd be hard-pressed not to think you're standing in Connecticut when you look at the, the salt box, box architecture of the property. It's actually a replica of his family home in Mystic, Connecticut, which is a museum, Denison yeah. Museum. If you cross the river, you see uh, in, the, in the community of 44, very noticeable rock fortifications. Uh, even before the Indians came in 1778, there were some forts in place. Were those forts built in response to this conflict? When the Connecticut settlers came, uh, most of the fighting took place here in Wilkes-Barre between Fort Durkee and Fort mm -hmm. Wyoming. But the settlements on the west side needed protection from Indian raids. So the fort was built at 40 Fort, and that was named for the first 40 settlers. Another fort was built down in Plymouth, Shawnee Fort, and a further fort built up the river on this side in Pittston called uh, Pittston Fort. In addition, because of there were farms of uh, people living in between the forts, there was a blockhouse. Lazarus Stewart built a blockhouse near his property down at Hanover Township, uh, about three miles south of here and also uh, there was a blockhouse in Plains Township between Wilkes-Barre and um, Piston Fort. So there were places where uh, the settlers could go in the event of Indian raids. Uh, John Jenkins in what's now West Piston built a stockade around his house. Uh, the Wintermutes I mentioned before, they put a stockade around their house, but since they were suspected of being Tories, uh, a strict eye was kept on them. Uh, but you did have places where the settlers could go for refuge in the event of Indian raids, which could happen at any time. You mentioned suspected Toryism. Uh, we live in an age today of very intense political partisanship, uh, but we don't fear jail or arrest or bodily harm. Uh, if you were a loyalist family here, maybe hiding where your, your true loyalties lie, what would happen if someone really found you out? Well, in Wyoming Valley, if you didn't take the oath of allegiance to the Continental Congress, you were, you were expelled from your property, you had to leave. Yeah, the, the Wintermute family somehow lived here right up until the time of the Battle of Wyoming as the Tories uh, and, and Native Americans uh, uh, insurgents came down through the valley. They got to his palisaded home, so to speak, and basically said, you know, we know you're a Tory, we know you favor the British, but sorry, we got to burn your place. So they actually burned 
the family home down so that there would be no retribution towards the Wintermutes, who again eventually left the valley. Well, when Butler's Rangers came into the valley, they literally opened the gates of the fort and, and invited him in. He made it his headquarters. And to lure the militia out of 40 Fort to attack uh, the trap that Butler had set up for them, uh, he burned the Wintermute uh, farmstead, which they were not going to be able to stay here after Butler left anyway. They were going to have to leave. Uh, but that was one of his tactics to lure the militia out of the fort at 40 Fort to the end of the Battle of Wyoming. We live today in a nation where law, order, the judicial system is all the bedrock foundation of our republic. Uh, what if you were a loyalist family and you made the argument that, well, we are still in the British Empire, the Americans are rebels, and British law still holds? Was there any recourse for you? Was there any judge or judicial system to protect you? Not in the Wyoming Valley. This, this was the Wild West frontier, so to speak. Well, it was a and, is it fair to call it lawless? No, um, no, no, no. No, there was, there was, there was uh, within your community, there was peace. But if you fell outside that community in terms of being a Tory or uh, being a, a, you know, a Pennamite at that point, you were in trouble. And likewise, if you were a Yankee and the Pennamites came through, you were gonna, you're gonna have some very serious consequences. You could lose your home and your property. When the Connecticut people came here, remember they came under the Susquehanna Company, which was not a governmental unit. So they literally entered into a compact similar to the Mayflower Compact to establish rules for the community. And Connecticut had laid out five townships, uh, three on the um, east, uh, east side of the river, Pittston, Wilkes-Barre, Nanticoke, which later became Hanover, and on the west side, Forty Fort, which uh, became Kingston, and then uh, Plymouth and you bought settling rights for lots in those townships. Then each town, or each township created sort of a, like a mini government, if you will, and certain offenses and things were handled at that level. Each township then sent a representative to the uh, town council, if you will, that heard appeals from decisions at that level. And then there was an appeal from that uh, committee town, of township representatives to the town meeting which was everybody. Certain offenses such as murder or whatever had to be sent back to Connecticut uh, for trial at the county level until this became Westmoreland County. So the Connecticut people actually did establish a system of government here uh, for themselves before they became an official uh, arm of the Connecticut government uh, for ruling the community uh, and handling offenses. There could only be one alcoholic establishment in each township, uh, things of that nature. The town stocks, uh, where they would put people in in the typical New England fashion, were just a block away from us. And it was more public humiliation, again, in the traditional New England uh, manner of doing things than it was really, um, you know, painful punishment. You were just humiliated in front of your neighbors. Well, they determined what offenses would be handled at the township level and what offenses would be handled at the um, appellate level and then what offenses mm -hmm. would be handled by the town uh, town council itself. You both spend a great deal of time with this material, with these sources. Uh, what do you think is the big takeaway from, from this debate? What do you think is the legacy? What should we uh, care about when it comes to this? I think it was how the dispute was settled. Um, in the end, the fair thing to do was to give the Connecticut settlers their land rights. Uh, it's very interesting 
Uh, despite the fact they did that, up until probably 1810s, 1820s, most Luzerne County land deeds had a uh, clause in there that protected them against claims from Connecticut. So even though the, the things were resolved, they weren't going to allow a future uh, Connecticut claim. You see them creep in in the 1810s into regular land deeds that were transferred back and forth between people. But I think ultimately the way it was settled by forming a county to give them a local identity, um, it really was in the end solved in a fairly peaceful and respectable manner uh, compared to the kind of the Wild West attitude that had prevailed for so many years prior to that. Do you see any like lasting vestige of that sort of New England culture that's still around now or is that completely gone? What you had were uh, substantial landowners who came here from Connecticut and at least until the late 1800s they tended to be uh, not across the board but to a certain degree they tended to be the wealthier farming families here um, and they owned a lot of land yeah so they also were the ones who had the uh, mineral rights under the property so a lot of the coal mining that occurred here the people who made this money on it were the leasing rights from the coal the coal companies were basically either uh, a local coal company or they were backed by the railroads. In the end, they didn't do particularly well. The people leasing the land, they just got revenue from their land. So those were they did okay. New England people. They stuff. were by and large New England people, at least initially. Well, once uh, the land issue was settled and the Connecticut people were confirmed in their lands, they had most of the good land in the valley. And as time went on, um, they became wealthier, especially with the mineral rights and the royalties from the coal. But you can still drive around the entire valley and you will see street names. Uh, Dana, Franklin, Butler, Gore, um, Ransom, Durkee, uh, that are commemorating really those early settlers. Uh, it reads like a who's who of um, the early settling uh, families here, uh, Dorrance's, uh, Butler's. What fascinates me is the fact most people assume Franklin Street, which is one of the main streets in the city of Wilkes-Barre, was named obviously for Ben Franklin. In fact, it wasn't. It was named for John Franklin, the Yankee insurgent who went around stirring up all sorts of problems here in northeastern Pennsylvania on behalf of the, the Connecticut settlers. By the way, he becomes the sheriff of Luzerne County. So what you find is a lot of the Connecticut insurgents end up in power, uh, powerful positions in both the county as well as the state. Zebulon Butler came here as a surveyor with the Susquehanna Company, uh, went off and worked, uh, served in George Washington's army, led the troops at the Battle of Wyoming, uh, becomes a county official. Then his son becomes a member of the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania, serving with Ben Franklin at one point on that body. His grandchildren, uh, one of them was a, a U.S. congressman. So the Connecticut settlers get very ingrained into the power structure of the area. Um, and you see a, a multitude, Denison's grandson and son were both U.S. congressmen uh, from the area. So uh, the Connecticut settlers were really the leaders, at least until the late 19th century in Wyoming Valley here. And they left a very strong legacy of uh, of, of, you know, really an up, almost an upper class uh, group of people who work so hard to build the area up. 
In fact, when Luzerne County was uh, formed, uh, the initial meetings uh, to uh, establish the county offices and, and the judiciary and everything were held in Zebulon Butler's house right up here on the corner of Northampton Street, about a half a block from us. And the irony of it was the Pennsylvania legislature, when they designated Luzerne County, they appointed a committee to locate the county uh, buildings, public buildings. And all three of them, including Zebulon Butler, were Connecticut settlers. So they sort of stuck it to Pennsylvania when they chose what is now Public Square, which had been the site of Fort Wilkesbury, which was the county seat of Westmoreland County, Connecticut, as the location for the courthouse and the public buildings was going to be where the old county seat of Westmoreland County, Connecticut was. And then they went on to, as they, their wealth increased, for the, particularly with the coal royalties, they were the ones who established the gas companies, the light companies, uh, the civic improvements uh, that you had, uh, the water companies, and uh, they were the, the banks. Uh, they were some of the initial investors in uh, the, the local infrastructure, if you will, uh, to improve the valley as, as it grew. Yeah, the Connecticut settlers literally become the powerful uh, people here in the valley. Although it's interesting, up until well into the 1800s, even though this was now Pennsylvania, land deeds would often include a writer in them or a, a, a reference to the fact that no Connecticut claim could be made to the land. So even though the Connecticut folks had become the most powerful people here in Wyoming Valley, now Pennsylvania, there was still that, that suspicion that maybe a Connecticut claim could come in later on. And that continued well past the settlement and, and this area really becoming just one. And many, many of those people's homes used to stand right along this street before Wilkes University tore them down for their, their buildings. But uh, they lived here on um, River Street and Franklin Street. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. Remember to pick up a copy of our new book, Battlefield, Pennsylvania, written by yours truly, available now. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Mm -hmm.